Hello and welcome to Discovering Dementia. I'm Penny Bell and I started making this podcast after my mum was diagnosed with dementia. I was looking for more information on how to support her and I wanted to share what I found out. I'm not a dementia expert but I've learnt a lot along the way and I hope some of it is useful for you. This time I'm meeting someone who like me has been documenting a parent's story and in the process has created a moving tribute to his dad. Until I was 87, I lived the same life, which was to me a life of normality within Earth's existence. But then I began to deteriorate physically, and then I became demented. And at that point, as my neurons began to collapse or whatever, I actually moved into a second life, which is what the life I'm living now. I am not the person that I was before I was 87. This is Peter Pickering. He's living with dementia and for many years his son Dave has been recording his voice. Dave's a storyteller and an award-winning podcaster and he's interviewed his dad many times. As a former documentary maker himself, Peter's always enjoyed being involved in Dave's work and has rarely said no to an interview. Listening back to all they'd done together, Dave discovered that he'd not only captured Peter's life and their own close relationship, but also, without realising, he'd recorded his dad's dementia journey from its very earliest stages. With Peter now in his 90s, these recordings, spanning several decades, have come together in a new 18-part mini-series, Down to a Sunless Sea, Memories of My Dad. Yes, my problem is memory, yes. But it's much greater than memory. It extends beyond it. I'm not the same per I'm not living the same life but being unable to remember it. I've moved out of it and can't remember. I can remember that I lived a, f- a first life but I can't remember very much. I can, re- I fail to remember within it. And, I mean, that's the thing. Like, it seems to me that you're a new person in your view. You can remember bits of fragments of who you were, and they, I guess you... Ex- because it's my first life, which I believe has validity, which I, I, I wish that I had not moved from it. Do you remember you? You must have been very absorbed with this podcast that you've been making, Down to a Sunless Sea, Memories of My Dad, because it's not just the story of your dad and his life story and the onset of dementia, which is obviously very pertinent to this podcast, Discovering Dementia. It's looking a lot at the science 
behind the issues that you're covering and you, you're going over quite a range of topics you know you're, you're talking about his other physical conditions he has a heart condition your, your family relationships friendships you touch on mental health euthanasia it must have been an absolutely massive thing to think through and to plan it's been a a process of being kind of lost in my dad's memories in, in a lot of ways and my own memories and then as you say in mind expanding new ways of thinking and new ideas and all of those things have been going on while I've been making it but it started a long time ago I guess the earliest recordings from this are, are from 1984 that were recorded by my dad on audio cassettes well, would you like to say a few words for the New Year, Dave? Come on, I'll put the, re- come on, I'll put the recorder on. You can say something for the New Year. Here, Dave, come and say a few new, a few words to the world for the New Year. Don't get too near. You just don't be all right there. What do I do? Well, anything you like to. What, what message have you got for the world on this New Year's Day from the King of the Fairies? I haven't got any. Well, you told me you were the King of the Fairies yesterday when we were going I up the am. hill. I am. And so you should have a message beep, for all beep, the fairies anyway. Beep. of recording did you do (laughs) so I've got a lot of hours what I've been saying so I must have made this calculation at some point is over 15 hours of material we should probably say that as part of making this podcast you received some money from the Pulse Award which is a new fund from the British Podcast Awards and the Wellcome Trust and part of that was to communicate science better and to put that across in a podcast in a, you know, an interesting and informative way. And so for the podcast, you went off and interviewed lots of scientists, didn't you? Yeah, I did. And, and yeah, and that's how I met you as well, because we both got that award. It is so how we met, yeah. We kind of met. <laughs> and, you know, one of the, the first guests that I interviewed were, in fact, you were the first non-my-father guest that I interviewed for the show. So the Wellcome Trust gave me the opportunity to investigate the bigger themes because my dad is a man of ideas and so it seemed really fitting to get into the ideas behind what we were talking about and so yeah I spoke to medical doctors who do research around dementia I spoke to medical doctors who have differing and contradictory opinions about assisted dying or assisted suicide which is something my dad is very passionate about and wants for himself but can't get. I spoke to epidemiologists about drug use and social scientists about doing research on people who have been given or might want to have artificial hearts which was a fascinating kind of curved ball to do but I like that episode as well because it thought a lot about the future and I think my dad in his politics has always looked to the future you know like he was born in 1924 but when the 60s came along he really embraced the 60s and you know when the 90s or whatever whatever my generation is when that came along he certainly got down with all my interests and so you know looking to the future is something that he's always been about 
I spoke to somebody who does death studies, which is fascinating and, and mind expanding. I spoke to a therapist about grief. So I've covered so many aspects of the kinds of themes that have come up on the show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The most obvious thing I've missed out was kind of suicide and mental health, where I've spoken to, again, to psychologists and, and also to uh, a historian. I started recording people that I knew from my closest friends and family to, to people I, I knew kind of very mildly that I might have bumped into at a party or whatever when I was making Getting Better Acquainted, which was oh, maybe the third podcast that I kind of made seriously. One of the first people I interviewed for that was my dad. And back then, that was uh, 2011, when I sort of sat down and recorded those first couple of conversations with him. In fact, I say sat down. The first one I recorded with him was recorded in Stansted Airport, Weatherspoons, when we were going on a trip to see my sister in Germany. And so I recorded it. Um, it started off in the Weatherspoons. It ended on the plane. I sort of started off recording my dad just because he's my best friend or was my best friend. Or I don't even, I don't like a hierarchy of friendship. I, I think the best way to say it is the, my oldest friend for his my friend I've known for the longest time, but also he is my literal oldest friend because he's uh, 96. Um, so he is the oldest friend I have. But I started recording him just because I like him. But as it went on, I kind of invited him back more and more times because he's old. And I knew that these were my last opportunities to capture him and to talk to him and to have the conversations that we wouldn't have without a microphone there because there's something about a microphone that emboldens you a little bit to have kind of deeper conversations but you think that society needs to change i think that it needs to change but whether it's possible whether it's you capable do you think of change it's possible the yeah. that's the real i mean it's a question of whether consciousness can overcome human nature and it's quite scary in a weird way to think how much I have recorded. Each episode is kind of an hour minimum. It's quite long form. So there's a lot of material there that people can go through. I mean, I've always been connected to the idea of DIY podcasting. I was into the punk and uh, indie scenes as, as a musician. So like the idea of rough and uh, messy recordings have always appealed. I didn't record in any sense that considered the idea of, of getting the, the microphone close to someone's mouth and getting a really beautiful, crisp recording. But what I, what I always did was I had it on the table or something similar, so that it wasn't close to my guests. My guests didn't really think about the microphone much at all. I mean, I always had headphones on to monitor it, because even though I wanted background sound, I wanted to know if the recording suddenly stopped or if the background sound was too overwhelming. I did polish up the bad work of my past when I was making Down to a the Sea. You still manage to to keep that kind of real sound. And when you have a microphone just sort of sitting in the middle of the room, you are picking up everything. And so as a listener, you start to feel more that you're in that moment with you. Yeah, it makes it more real. And that's something that I've definitely learned over the years and, and have used in different ways in my other work. Like having background sound in live environments does make something seem more real. You know, all of the conversations with my dad 
apart from the first couple, as I say, that were recorded on public transport, were recorded in his space, in his flat. You know, with his ticking clock that has annoyed me as an audio producer in the background, you know, with his neighbour above when she moved around, you could hear things rattling about. You can hear all of those things in those recordings. And I've listened to them so many times. I'm really aware that they're there. But those textures, whether you're aware that they're there or not, they change what it's like as a listener, but they also change what it's like as a guest um, and as a host. In between recording those conversations, we were seeing each other all the time. And in, by the later conversations, I was caring for my dad, going round to his flat every day to sort of look after him. And so if sometimes I then turned on a mic, it was kind of an extension of our relationship, whatever that was, whether it be friendship or whether it be a slightly different dynamic as I became more the carer. It's not just about caring. In those conversations, my role became different. I had to help him to express himself because he would not remember things. So he kind of would use me as a, a walking encyclopedia, like he'd just throw any word at me and expect me to work out what memory he was going for. Yeah. And was your dad comfortable with you making the recordings? Yes, always. He's always been really for it. I'm a big believer in consent in lots of different kinds of contexts. And so I was always very concerned with whether he could consent or not. You know, listening to Down to a Sunday Sea, if people do, they'll get the impression that he's a very big champion of me and my work, sometimes a bit too much for my liking, but but he has always supported my work and what I did. So he always was a fan of getting better acquainted. Before that, he'd been not just a fan, but a member of a band that I formed that was very kind of utopian. And it was a big band with like 15 members and democratic approach to it. And he was the documenter of the band. He was actually not a very good documentary maker of that band. He was a good documentary maker in general, but he was always filming the audience, which is not what you want as a band. But he was filming the audience because he liked to see their reactions to me. I guess. And not just me, the, the band in general, because he loved the band, but there was a father element to it. So tell me a bit about your dad. I was saying to my brother the other day that I feel like I could make another 18-part series and cover completely different parts of my dad's life and he would sound like a completely different person, but there would be as much there. Everybody at 95 has a lot of life, but he's managed to fit in quite a lot. And and that's partly his personality. It's partly the historic events that he's lived through. He was born in 1924. He describes the family that he was born into as lower middle class. His dad worked in kind of admin management in the docks. I'm not sure if his mum worked back then, but she would eventually work as a benefits officer. I'm not quite sure where he was born, actually. I think it was, it might have been London, but he grew up then in Bristol for quite a few years before he kind of had his teenage years in London again. He went to grammar school, which he describes as a non-posh grammar school, 
but I I don't know if there's such a thing fully. And he has the voice of someone who's pretty posh, whatever his class politics are. <laughs> he is very political, isn't he? He is very political. I mean, he was a teenage communist. His best friend at school was a, an anarchist and he was a communist. He didn't go to university. He went to war instead. Before he went to war, he did a little bit of work experience in various places, one of which was a documentary filmmaking studio. He made a, a kind of make, do and mend video just before he went into the army. That was his first documentary film or creative film that he made. Then he went into the army where he was a wireless operator, which you know, saved his life, arguably, or at least gave him a very easy war because his job was to follow around anti-aircraft guns and tell people what was going on. So he didn't see any combat, really. While he was at war, I think the most traumatic experience of his war was more his dad dying of tuberculosis when he couldn't kind of go and see him. And actually, my dad's dad having died young has been something I've, I've really thought about a lot, making this show about how he hasn't died when I was young or when he was young. Neither of those things happened. I expected him to die when I was young because he was 58 when I was born. I'm 38 now and he's still alive, which is very unexpected <laughs> and in some ways welcome, although maybe the last few years more ambiguously so. So my knowledge of my dad was as a retired person who did all the childcare, really. My childhood is very complicated. I had lots of different living circumstances growing up, but certainly most of those living circumstances involved my dad being a very unusual dad in that he was doing most of the housework, most of the childcare, providing me with kind of strange magical experiences like being allowed to draw pictures on walls and doors in houses and reading me big epic stories like the Lord of the Rings and the Iliad and the Odyssey and all sorts of things. I'm very lucky to have had my dad as a father, I think, in many ways. And certainly, whilst you can definitely make some critiques of his feminism. He was a member of a feminist book club when I was growing up. So he was buying feminist books from that book club for me to read, you know, kids books. Again, books that probably could be critiqued now, but things like Bill's New Frock by Anne Fine. He had a big influence in many ways that people don't expect a father to influence a son. <laughs> You used to walk me home from school in Keras. You used to take walk walk oh, down the bloody hill, yeah. yeah. Past the snowdrops. You and what's his name? Alistair. Alistair. Past the snowdrops. That's right. Yeah. That was good times. Yeah. I liked living in the countryside. So you were obviously very close. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so when his dementia began, was it something that was obvious to you? No, the opposite. I mean, definitely the opposite. I would say initially. I was definitely guilty of, you know, saying, you know, everyone has a bad memory, Dad. I can't remember a time in my life he has not complained about having a bad memory. And most of that time, he didn't have dementia. So when he started having dementia, I just was like, well, it's, it's just what you've always complained about, isn't it? So I definitely was slow to believe 
I feel very guilty about that now, particularly because I like to think of myself as someone who listens to people's lived experience. It's a phrase that's quite important in my political understanding of the world. And yet I definitely was guilty of not fully appreciating my dad's lived experience. Sometimes those very early stages of dementia are hard to pick up on. And, and also you don't want to believe it's true yourself as a, as a person that's close to them. But then how did that progress? Did he go and get a formal diagnosis at some point? Yeah, so there were a, a couple of years where he didn't even want to. You know, he was starting to use the word, although he talked about being demented, which is very not just politically incorrect, but quite confronting for many people, <laughs> um, which was another reason it was hard for me to fully get on board with his initial diagnosis of himself. It became more and more obvious going on. I mean, it's hard to say what was dementia and what wasn't. You know, He had a whole year, which I would describe as very intense depression, where he didn't eat and we had him over our house and we would feed him because he wouldn't eat otherwise. You know, he just completely gave up in some ways on life. And that was all related to physical ailments, more, I thought, at the time, than anything to do with his mind. It was to do, you know, with his fingers don't work and uh, in the way that they used to. And that's very harsh for someone who wants to type because he's a writer. That's another part, a big part of his identity outside of his work. Skin conditions and, and heart conditions and all sorts. So it was easy to not realise that, that it might be related to dementia. But now, looking back, I think maybe that year was partially to do with experiences of dementia that he couldn't quite fully understand now because through doing this project I understand a lot more about dementia and how it can change your your moods and your personality and and stuff like that so maybe he it was happening then eventually he did get uh diagnosis he went to a memory clinic a few times and I went with him to two of those different appointments the first one he was diagnosed of having a mild vascular dementia. So at that time, for me, that was a relief. And then a few years later, when he had the second diagnosis, it was no longer mild. It was, you know, medium to advanced and it was mixed dementia. So he does have Alzheimer's as part of his diagnosis. And you became his carer. Yeah. I mean, it's a word that took me a while to fully own and uh, to use about myself partly because you know I started off as not just his child but also his friend and so I had two different positionalities to change I feel like for better or worse it might be easier for me to see myself as becoming a carer for my mum because we have a less close relationship so it's more about responsibility and I don't necessarily want responsibility to be involved in my friendships but you know, there is responsibility in being a friend, just as there is responsibility in being a, a child. So, yeah, carer happened. I mean, it depends what you mean by caring, doesn't it? You know, like the year when we were having him over to eat a lot, that was probably being a carer. But I wouldn't have called it that. Uh, similarly, you know, taking him out and making sure he was having a happy social life and those sorts of things, I now would see as part of the a thing that a carer might do. But I hadn't used that word yet. But eventually, you know, I was going round to his house every day, opening his jars, making sure that things were happening that should be happening, making sure he was eating, making sure that he was comfortable, doing my best to make him as happy as possible, getting his computers working. There's so many elements to being a carer that 
I'd never thought of before I was one and have only realised were elements of being a carer, kind of looking back. (laughs) And so now he's moved to a home. How did that decision come about? Yeah, I mean, even though it happened a few years ago, it's kind of the rawest, in some ways, stuff for me. Because it's it's a decision that, that definitely happened and I was definitely involved in. But it's a more complex thing, what decisions we make for our parents. Because we don't have infinite money. We don't have infinite other kinds of resources, time, those sorts of things. So we can't always do what we would most like to do. And we can't always do what we know our, our, you know, our parents, the people living with dementia that we're caring for, what they want us to do either. So it's a situation where you have to make compromises, both with yourself, with the person you're caring for. And if you're someone in my situation with the rest of your siblings, all of whom, because my dad has had children in multiple generations, we have different financial situations, we have different generational attitudes, we have all sorts of different things that need to be navigated. But a few different things happened leading up to that decision. Before that had even happened, I reduced my caring responsibilities. And I I should say, I wasn't the only sibling caring for him. I was the kind of London carer, but he would quite regularly go off up to stay with my sister, you know, for big chunks of time that would give me the mental energy as well. I mean, it was, you know, that transference was for her and for me in different kinds of ways. Then we got into a situation where we got two outside carers to go in, neither of whom were trained carers. They were sort of family, friends or neighbours, which was the best option for him at that time because he wasn't going to have a carer, but he would put up with family, friends. That's part of him being a big socialising, popular guy. So, you know, he would be doing it as a favour for those people. He'd be letting them care for him, those sorts of things. In fact, technically, I guess we had three carers because one was called a cleaner, but that is part of the job of caring for someone living with dementia or or any person who's elderly is, you know, looking after their domestic circumstances too. So that reduced the pressure on me as an individual. And during that time, I was lucky enough to get therapy on the NHS for my own mental health conditions, which was very useful in working out how I felt about how trapped I felt. You know, I felt trapped for numerous reasons. I was a a freelancer in the arts trying to live in London, um, which is hard, full stop. I was renting from my sister, which is a different kind of being trapped. And then I was caring for my dad. And part of my living conditions were slightly based around the expectation that I would be a carer for my dad, even though I would always have cared for my dad. But during that time, I was able to go, oh, I actually can make decisions for my own life. And I don't have to give up my entire life to be near my dad and to care for him. If I'm the youngest sibling who is the least successful in my career, should I really be giving up all of my time to look after my dad? Or should maybe that be done either by some of the older siblings or maybe the siblings with money might legitimately pay for some (laughs) more care than they were already paying for. Because as I say, that is the thing that makes it the hardest is I feel very guilty because I can never contribute anything but time. And then in the end, 
I took that time away. So I feel like, what am I contributing? In some ways, making down to a sunless sea was a, a way of contributing something again, like giving him something back because he would have loved the show, I think. He can no longer appreciate it, but he, he would have loved it back in the day for sure. So yeah, the family had a family meeting. We decided to move him. That meant that I could move house. So I moved house away from London. And then a month or so later, I was slightly uninvolved, but the decision was made for him to go to a specific care home that's quite far away from me that I can't get to very easily. And that's where he's been since then. Uh, he was initially there on a trial, but it's a trial that's continued on. I wouldn't say he's happy to be there, but I also would say that he's better off being there than he was when he was looking after himself in a flat in London. I mean, some of the things that inspired us to make this decision were things like him going off and getting lost and walking along a dual carriageway during rush hour and, you know, the kinds of things you don't want your parent to do I mean he loved that like he thought it was hilarious because he thought he was he thought he was in the right he thought there should be a pavement there and he wrote to the police to tell them it actually was one of the moments that really put him back into his old self but it was also one of the moments that made us go okay he needs more care than we're giving him he actually needs someone to be able to keep an eye on him 24 hours a day yeah so tell me how things have gone then because now he's in the home and we've got we're in this covid situation where everywhere is locked down including care homes how has that been going yeah so that's been hard before the lockdown happened you know he has a carer that was taking him out for drives he had a choir that he was going to not that he's ever been in choirs before and i don't know how much he sang in that choir but the music helped it mattered it worked he had a dog that was visiting him which is again a, a, another thing that was really working those things stopped during the lockdown as did my sister and my brother's visits to him they could no longer do that the visits have started up again uh, outside and with social distancing and all of those things on a sunny day, all of that. But the dog and the choir and other things like that haven't started up again. We've been trying to communicate with him, you know, as much as possible. And, you know, before lockdown, I was trying not to communicate with him, I have to say, because I didn't find I was helping him and it wasn't helping me. And so I thought it was better for people who had like less emotional responses to give him what he needed. And I think there's an argument that can be made that sometimes strangers can, can do more for somebody who's living with dementia than, than those of us who knew them in the before times because we're trying to work on scripts that are, you know, we should have thrown out, they're no longer useful. But with the lockdown happening, you know, he needed any input that could happen at all. So I was with my siblings desperately or semi-desperately trying to manage to speak to him. Initially, that was very impossible. The staff were really stressed, really overworked, really doing their best, but in really hard conditions, uh, very scared for their own lives and livelihoods and, and, and everything else. But as it's gone on, they have managed to go beyond what they're being paid to do. I, the carer that's linking us with our dad through FaceTime and, you know, Facebook Messenger, video chat, whatever works that week. She's doing that in her free time. You know, she's coming in early to do that. That's not part of her job. It's internet stupid, so I'm on my, my phone. OK. Hello, Dad. 
Who's that? Your son. Hi, Dad, it's Dave. Is that Dave? It is. Dave, yeah, Dave. That's right. Been trying to speak to you for, for quite a few weeks now, so it's great to see you. Can you see me? And can you hear me? I've seen him quite recently. I, I wouldn't say you have And so initially there was a couple of phone calls which don't work very well. He can never understand who I am. But as the lockdown's gone on, he's actually stopped understanding what a phone is. I mean, my sister tried to phone him last weekend and he uh, he couldn't be convinced that it wasn't his electric razor. He, he kept trying to, to shave his face with the phone, <laughs> with my, my sister on the other end, kind of trying to get his attention, which is funny, probably less funny for my sister in that moment. But it's a funny story. Down to a son that sees full of that. Stories that are funny and hopefully they help people to laugh. And I think it's important to laugh. But, you know, the funny moments are also really sad. At the same time, they're always really sad. And so now we managed to connect with him through video message. He doesn't recognise who I am all the time. Certainly when me and my brother are both there, it's easier because we can talk to each other. And so it doesn't matter if he can't give us anything. But he does seem to get some things from it. So it's kind of worth it to a certain extent but I'm not sure that he doesn't think we're not videos or pictures you know because we're not there in the room with him. How has it been for you to make this really really long series over many many years which actually even includes your own voice as a child how has it been for you to process all of that mentally and spend so long listening to your dad and hearing how the dementia has crept in over time? I mean it's been a really valuable moving but very sad and complicated experience I already find myself grieving for him even as he's still alive so I hear his voice talking to me in exactly the same way that people I know who've lost their loved ones still hear their voices still expect him to come through the door and all of that as he was I've been experiencing that even as he's still alive And then I started playing his voice on a loop around, you know, my head. I mean, for people who don't make audio, for so many reasons, you have to loop audio constantly. And so I've heard like some of the very most meaningful moments between me and him, you know, where I've told him how much I love him or he's told me how much he loves me or whatever, you know, on a loop, which changes your relationship to that audio and you kind of go through lots of different moments where it's like it becomes everyday and boring and then another moment you'll hear it and it'll hit you again as if it's the first time that you heard it and that's kind of what it's like talking to my dad in the years before I moved where I was his carer where every conversation would be kind of like a replay of other conversations and sometimes they would be you know tiresome to have again and sometimes they would be moving so it's been very weird it's been like replaying the years before I moved again at times it's been very healing and at times it's been very traumatizing you hear it from a different perspective each time almost yeah and and listeners hope you know hopefully listeners will if they re-listen will have those kind of experiences too I'm sat at my desk now, and this is where I've edited the show. And on my windowsill, I have this picture of my dad that's basically looking at me all the time. And so I felt like my dad has been watching me make this show about him. And that's another big part of it. I've also felt like he's been a co-creator of this show, you know, a collaborator of the show. Yeah, sure, 
I've made the final editorial choices. But he said what he wanted to say in those moments. And I have never been able to get my dad to say what I wanted him to say. He has always said what he wants to say, um, which is one of the good qualities, I think, of the audio recordings is that he gets to speak for himself about his own experiences. And people living with dementia are not people who get listened to very much, which is why I love you know, what you do on your show, because you're also listening to people telling us what it's like rather than all of the people without dementia telling other people what dementia is which is what we mostly get you know there's no doubt that what you've put together is a work of art I mean it's weaving (laughs) all of those elements of science your dad your personal feelings your family all of that comes together and it's such an interesting listen there's so much going on so I would really recommend it to people can you tell us how we can find it Yes, if you Google Down to a Sunless Sea, Memories of My Dad, you'll absolutely find it there. But it's also anywhere that you get your podcasts. So you can find it on iTunes or Spotify, Stitcher or Google Play or whatever you use, really. It should be there. And if you by any chance find that it isn't, do let me know and I'll make sure it is. It's also on on its own website, downtoasunlesspod.com. And my stuff is at davepickeringstoryteller.co.uk where you can find like everything else I've done. And you can follow me on Twitter at GooseFat101, but you can follow Sunless Pod on Twitter where you'll just get podcast-related stuff. (laughs) Well, thanks so much, Dave. It's been really interesting. I do hope people tune in and listen to it. It's, It's an excellent podcast. It's already had rave reviews. So thank you for being a guest on the show. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for being a guest on my show too in the past. Um, and, you know, I love your show. And I just want, you know, to, to finish with that. Like, I love it. And thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Discovering Dementia. Thanks again to Dave Pickering and his dad, Peter, and their podcast, Down to a Sunless Sea, Memories of My Dad. And you'll find my interview with Dave in episode two. Discovering Dementia was produced and presented by Penny Bell with original music by Leila Mitwali.